Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully excited to welcome back Robert Wogglemuth to the program. He's written a book called Gun Lap, Staying in the Race with Purpose. When that uh, second time that gun goes off, it gives the runners a chance to know they're on their last lap. So we're going to find out all about that. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Nice to see you again. <laughs> I, t- I agree. I'm yeah. looking at your picture. You're looking at mine. It's like we're uh, connecting. That's, that's true. Yeah. With Perfect. Yeah. So I, I want to hear about your book, Gunlap. So tell me why, you know, just for starters, why you decided to write this book. Um, all right. So I'm getting older. <laughs> and I, I wanted to help other guys who are getting older. Okay. Too. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, easy so enough. The, the gun lap is the last lap of a race around a track, a distance race around the track. The starter fires the pistol to start the whole race. And then when the lead runner begins his final lap the starter shoots the gun again and that's the gun lap and that's what we're in right now yeah and it's uh no small thing is it boy it is no small thing that's the understatement whatever else you say today it is that that's an understatement for Mm -hmm. sure yeah and we need to pay attention we need to uh make sure that we're staying focused and uh there are some interesting stats and a lot of uh men will sometimes uh, shift their life into neutral at kind of a young age, uh, maybe try to retire a little bit early, and and you're suggesting yeah. we got to make sure every day counts. It it's the truth, and and yet, uh, you know, you're at a place in your life. Okay, so I'm 73. Oh wow! I don't know if I should. Admit you don't look that. 73. I'm se- Thank you. Wow. <laughs> That's because you're looking at a high school picture. Of me. <laughs> yeah. Rule one: I'm never change sure, your but... promo picture. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Just a minute. Let me get the walker over here right, so it doesn't right. get in the way of the right, yeah. Okay. So, um, but you're right. This is a serious deal. And so a guy my age uh, can be overwhelmed with regrets, can find himself doing a lot of uh, self-conversation, self-deprecation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, wake up in the night and feel like your your life is over, that you're not worth anything. Oh boy! Your phone stops ringing. Your your phone stops ringing or slows down. Uh, email not. I mean, maybe you're retired from your work. I mean, all kinds of reasons for a guy my age to begin to feel useless. And and so I, I I'm writing this book to be an encouragement to guys my age to say, look, I don't care how you feel right now. There's a lot of mileage left on those tires, mm-hmm. and let's make good use of let's make good use of the years that you have in front of you. Don't stop. Don't stop. Yeah. And, Robert, I'd say this is an opportunity to maybe have some of your most productive and fruitful years in ministry starting at this stage. Oh, it's absolutely right. I talk about that. You know, I I talk about the fact that most guys in their 60s, sometimes late 50s, certainly in in their 60s, have more time than they used to have, fewer demands. So what are you going to do with that? You're going to watch Netflix? Are you going to just hang out? Are you going to play shuffleboard? 
are you going to find new ways to minister? And so, you know, so you're in church and the pastor says, we need fill in the blank. We need mm-hmm. volunteers for the kids or for the little kids, or we need uh, somebody once a month to, to do the nursery, what, whatever. And you, you think to yourself, you know, I've always just said no to that stuff. I've been too busy, whatever, but I could say yes now. And this is a great time in your life to do something highly productive. And, and so that's my encouragement in this book. Don't yeah. stop. Yeah. And Robert, can any of us say we know when the gun lap is going to go off? Well, you know, I've had to take kind of a crack at that. What I'm saying is this book is really written for guys in their 50s, and I would say probably the gun laugh starts at 60. That's that's anecdotal evidence, uh, not highly researched. Because, I mean, every guy is different, right? You know guys who are in their 70s and very vibrant and getting a lot of stuff done, and guys who are in their 50s are quitting. So, you know, this is a moving target for sure. Yeah. What are some of the things that push guys into this uh, off the sidelines? I'm I'm out of the game kind of mentality. What do you What do you think contributes to that? Well, um, here here's something. In fact, this this bill was the inspiration for this book. I'm lying in bed in the middle of the night, and guys my age, without getting into too graphic detail, guys my age have to get up at least twice in the night, right? Okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I get this, right? Right. So you got to get up, and then you come back, and you're trying to go back to sleep. And I'm lying there, and I, I'm beginning to find myself being very critical of myself. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, listening to the voices, saying, you know what? Um, in fact, this past year, I've had two different cancers. And then on top of COVID, I mean, it's been a hard year. So I'm lying there thinking, do I really have anything left to contribute? I mean, is there any reason that I ought to keep trying and pushing and 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 whatever? And so that self conversation just about did me in. And then I bumped into Martin Lloyd Jones, the great Welsh uh, writer and, and preacher, and he he writes about this self conversation thing. And here's what he does. And boy, I tell you, you and other guys maybe wives of guys listening right now, don't fall into the trap of listening to yourself. (laughs) Speak to to yourself. Mm -hmm. Speak with that guy. Speak with that guy. Don't acquiesce. Mm -hmm. Don't let that guy, you know, and I, I I grew up in a tradition where uh, work uh, was sometimes more important than grace. So I feel really good about myself when I get something productive done and I feel bad about myself if I don't, so, you know, performance-based faith, I mean, anybody out there put their hands in the air and say, yeah, that's me. Well, first of all, it's God's grace. So none of us are worthy, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus died for us and rose again to give us life abundantly. So that's a big deal. But don't find, and this is, I'm preaching to myself, don't lie there listening to the voice, speak, that, speak back to the voice. Say, I want, I want you, this is a word, this, I, I never let my kids say this. Shut up! I'm not going <laughs> to listen to the. I'm not going to listen to this voice. Uh-huh. I'm going to speak back to this voice and say, "Don't talk to me like that." I'm going to tell you who I am in Christ, and I'm not. I'm not going to succumb to this this bad language, this bad thought. This, and and it, and it, it isn't just motivational stuff. This is absolutely in Christ. I am. I am worthy of His love. Right. 
So I'm not going to lie there thinking, you know, I'm not worth anything. My health isn't what it used to be. You know, I, I'm winded walking up and down the steps. What, what, what good am I? Mm-hmm. And Jesus, Jesus says, you're worth dying for. There's a lot of good that you can do and snap out of it. You know, this is like Bob Newhart counseling me. <laughs> Stop get, it. Get on, get on <laughs> with it. Exactly. Get on with it. Yeah. Don't give up. So that's the point of this book. Yeah, I love that. So if you were to come back from the bathroom, crawl back into bed and start speaking truth in your heart, God has a plan that I'm excited to be part of. God has information about my, my name on it. It's got your name, it's got on it. name on it. It does. That's right. Yeah. That's and right. God has information about my life I don't have, and I uh, trust his sovereign plan. So I can't wait to Amen. get back to sleep so I can get up in the morning and do what he's <laughs> ordained me to do. Preach it, brother. Oh, yes. bring it on. Exactly. Why didn't I write your yes, foreword? Sir. Is it too late? Oh, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. We're on press. Yeah. Okay. My buddy Mike Hyatt, my, actually, Mike, my, my buddy Mike Hyatt gave us an endorsement. Mike and I have known each other for 30 years, and he's 10 years younger than I am. I don't know if you know that name, but Mike is very well known in this business. And so uh, he was an encouragement to me because he, he read this and said, I've known this guy for 30 years, and, and he's living what he's writing about. That's awesome. Now, Robert, you, yep. uh, I'm going to just brag about you a little bit. You're, you're a, a very driven high achiever that's made a big impact in the Christian community uh, through all mm-hmm. your work and all of the influences that you've had and been a part of. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, you, you hit a point where you slow down and you start to go, I'm not producing at the level I once was. That has got yeah. to nudge you a little bit, doesn't it? Hey, Wogelmuth, yes, you still worth, you still worth some, something? Exactly. And part of it, your body is is not not friendly anymore. I mean, I, I mean, it's not funny. I'm getting old. I can't do physically the things that I used to do. Yeah. So uh, you and I, are, you know, our hearts are connected to our bodies. What what we can do, and I said earlier, that makes me feel productive. If I do something meaningful, then I have worth. Jesus says, "Stop that, man." Yeah. You have worth. Period. Done. You don't have to perform for me to love you and, and to, uh, to speak through you and to empower you. So I talk about mentoring in this book, chapter called A Nice ROI, Return on Investment. So I've interviewed guys who I love, my brothers. I've got three brothers, and they're amazing. Uh, two of them are older, one younger. And, and my next oldest brother, Ken, mentors young men. He's got – when I ask him to tell me about these men, like sometimes like 10 at a time, Wow. And he started to cry. He started to cry on the phone, naming these young men who he has spoken into. He's taken the time to love these young men. I mean, it's an amazing story. So that's that's a very that's that's chapter eight in this book. A nice return on investment. So yeah. those are the kinds of things, Bill, that men my age and your age, you're not quite as old as I am, can do with their lives. It's a very cool thing. Yeah, uh, Robert, speak to discipleship a little bit because anyone at any age can meet with somebody and share their wisdom and their years of following Christ and speak that truth into another person's life. That's right. And all you have to do is do it. Yeah. You know, and and this, is, this is not some fancy program where you've got, you, you have to sign up to this guy and say, look, I'll, you know, let's, let's meet for, you know, once a week for the next 16 years. This is very informal. This can be very informal. In fact, I tell the story, that I, that of, of failure. I had a young man in my church when um, my late wife and I lived in Florida, and he wrote me an email, and he said, 
would you mentor me? And I was building a business and working like crazy. I mean, sleeping on the floor to get this business off the ground. And I said, I don't have time. And I mean, I look back on that bill and I think, what a, what a jerk. How mm-hmm. stupid to not take the time, especially the guy asks me to, to, uh, to mentor him. The amazing thing, speaking of God's grace, I lost track of him. He moved to Tennessee. I lost track of him. Uh, two months ago, out of nowhere, I got an email <laughs> from him. And I was, I was able to say, oh, Chris, I'm so glad to hear your voice. I have something to confess. I said, I, I thought I was too busy. You asked me to mentor you. And I said, no. So, I mean, that's, this, this is not from an ivory tower. I'm not looking at, at other guys our age, my age, and saying, you know, I do as I do. Right. I, I'm, conf- I'm confessing that I've gotten overwhelmed with being too busy and haven't stopped to help younger men along the way. It's, it's easy. You just have to put your hand in the air and say, here I am. I'm happy to volunteer. Yeah. Take a little break. We'll come back lots more with Robert Walgamuth. He's written a book called Gun Lap, Staying in the Race with Purpose. Be right back. Robert Walgamuth is my guest. He's written a book called Gun Lap, and that is, uh, in a long-distance race, the starter fires his pistol for the second time, and this signals the start of the gun lap, which is the last chance to leave it all out on the track. And his book will equip you with uh, tremendous biblical truths for your days ahead, and he will also uh, share encouraging stories of men who are in the race, just like you, or maybe even ahead of you. And also challenge yeah. you to live the rest of your life with grace and strength. Robert, I'd love for you to talk about the way the world says how you should enjoy retirement, what it what it should look like, and uh, the, the different message that we as Christians should, you know, take some of that enjoying uh, enjoyment from retirement, but also have uh, that gun lap go off to make sure we live with purpose. What a what a question! In fact, right now I've got this imaginary shield and I'm holding it up. <laughs> Somebody's going to listen to this, and they're going to get really ticked off at what I'm about to say. Okay. But I've got a bunch of friends, college friends, friends I love, people that I've stayed in touch with, who have bought an RV, and they're pulling a Jeep around the country and seeing sights and, you know, stopping at Stuckey's and getting pralines. <laughs> and, and, and I've got friends who live in Central Florida— um, at a gigantic commune. Sorry. Yeah, I know. I know what you're um, speaking of. Yeah, yeah. And so they they don't even have a car. They've got a golf cart. Yeah. And and so and I have to be really careful because I mean I'm dead serious. I have friends whom I love, friends I would take a bullet for, but they are they're they're getting ready to do square dancing and. Um, Shuffleboard, and you know, I picture this place, Bill, stocked with brilliant, experienced men 
who are playing cards. And there's a whole world of younger men who would give anything to sit down with a guy who spent his life as a lawyer or as a businessman or as a doctor or as a pastor or whatever and say, teach me. Mm-hmm. What what can I learn from what you've done? Uh, and, and that, you know, again, I have to be so careful because am I playing more? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm taking some time off and I'm, I'm doing stuff that I'm enjoying, but is it really worth giving my life to what I've just described? You know, the, uh, hanging out with other guys, my age and sharing stories and telling jokes and playing cards. Mm-hmm. Isn't there more ministry to do? Isn't there more that I could give my life to? So, you know, again, I'd be really careful because I'm not on a soapbox. I'm not yelling and screaming. I'm just saying to men my age, you could invest. You could invest not a lot of time. You've got experience that God has given to you, more more failure than than success, right? So come alongside a young man. And I tell stories in the book, again, stories of failure, but also the Lord has given me, in fact, I've just sold my business to two young men three young men who I've been mentoring for 17 years. Wow. And the joy of standing back and watching these guys run a, run a pace on a track I could never have run. But it, it took my intentional investment in their lives. And talk about ROI. I mean, it's been unbelievable to see how God is using these guys, much, much going much further than I ever could have gone. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a it's a great investment. All you have to do really is pay attention to what's going on and still be teachable. I I, I want to be teachable. I want the guys who are listening to me or the wives who are listening to be teachable. I want you to I want you to to be reading constantly. I want mm-hmm. you to be in the Word. Um, I lost my wife and my first wife in 2014, and she was a voracious Bible student. Uh, not so she could write or teach, just because she loved God's Word. So every morning when I'd get up, she'd get up an hour before me in the dark, and I'd walk past her chair, and she's studying, and I go upstairs. I'm working on my business. I'm even writing Christian books. I've got this Christian literary agency, all this Christian stuff. But she was the one that was in the Word. And the Lord took her home in 2014, the morning after the funeral, Bill. I'm sitting in her chair. And the Lord says to me, Robert, you're lazy. You have, you, you have consigned day-to-day study in my word to your wife. What were you thinking? And I, I'm not boasting. This is absolutely the truth. This has been six and a half years. And maybe I've missed 10 mornings in six and a half years of soaking in the word, spending the first hour with the Lord. And it's, it's been unbelievable. And I would take a man my age and lovingly taking by the shoulders and looking square in the eye and say, bud, don't you dare neglect spending time in God's word. Don't, don't forget getting on your knees and praying that God will use you in amazing new ways. Pray for your kids and your grandkids. Pray for the kids that play on your street. All kinds of things, even at your age when you can't run as fast as you used to run, where God can use you in amazing ways. That's what I want to say in this book. I love it. Robert, uh, my mentor uh, took four international missions trips in the last four Uh, years. He leads five Bible studies a week, and in October he turns 92. 
Oh, God bless this man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that is so great. That's a hero. And you know what? Yeah. Probably nobody would recognize his name if you said it. But, well, in this you know. town, many would, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, you know, my, my stepfather died when I was 17 and he showed up in my kitchen that day and said, let's have breakfast next week. I said, well, okay, I'm 17. So we met for breakfast once a week for the next 12 years. That's incredible. Your stepfather. Yeah, my stepfather died. That's an incredible died. story. Yeah, my stepfather died. So he came alongside me. I don't think he wanted, he wanted to make sure I didn't slip through the cracks. Point is, he's 92 oh. right now and he's still leading five Bible, oh, this Bible is the studies same a week. Guy. This is the same guy you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. What a story. Oh, yeah. what a gift. What a gift <laughs> that the Lord gave you by way of this man. Yeah, it's and really true. You know true. what? You can, you can be an answer to prayer for somebody else. I, who, I feel like I'm— 20 years from— I feel like I must do that, Robert, in order to there you go. pay it forward. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So we have a couple minutes, couple minutes left, and I could talk to you forever. But um, talk about some of the men who might read this book who are not yet on their gun lap. Uh, get ready. Okay. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. All right. So, yeah. Um, this guy, a very smart guy years ago said, Do, to be prepared is half the victory. So, and, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, when you go to the doctor, they don't really help you get ready to be sick. They help you when you're sick. Right. So not a lot of, you know, talking about how healthy healthy you eat or if you exercise. But that's all. In fact, I, there's a whole chapter there on your physical stamina. And, you know, I talked to a guy that it's called In Shape for This Race. I love it. Uh, last week, I'm, I met with him, a guy named Ken Davis. You probably know Ken. I know Ken You're well. In the, in the same yeah, I know Ken yeah. well. Yeah, so Ken, I'm Ken's agent. And Ken showed me a picture. He was standing on the beach holding his grandson's hand. And the picture was from behind him. And he looked like a beach manatee. <laughs> I'm sure those were Ken's words he, he used. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, they sure were. And when he saw that picture, he said, I said to myself, if that grandson had gone swimming into the ocean and was in trouble, I would not be in good enough health to, to, to help him, to save his life. Wow. And he said, God, God spoke to me in that moment. And Ken became a triathlete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, I'm I'm not saying that you've got to you've got to be a triathlete, but your physical condition has a lot to do with your ability to do what the Lord has called you. Yeah, to. Robert, thanks for writing this book. It's an important subject, yeah. and it's coming at a great time. There's a lot of men that are wondering uh, how they're going to finish the race. So this is a significant yeah. uh, book, and thank you so much for doing the interview today. Uh, my pleasure. Good to talk to you, Bill. Bless Thank you, you so much. Yep. Robert Wogelmuth has been my guest, and his book is called Gunlap, Staying in the Race with Purpose. Robert Wogelmuth, W-O-L-G-E-M-U-T-H. We'll take a short break, and you can bet we'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. 
All right. Time to get our Bibles out. Open them to the book of John. We're in chapter 9. We're already up to lesson number 14 with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. This is uh, an exciting study of the book of John. If you've missed any of it, you've got to start over and make sure you get caught up because it's been a fascinating study. Greg, so glad, so glad to have you back with us. Great to be here, Bill. Yeah, I know our time is, uh, is I want to make take full advantage of it. So let's get started. All right, well, welcome to the 14th lesson in our study of the Gospel of John as we look at chapter 9, and I entitle this lesson, The Blind Man Calls Their Bluff. This week we look first at a supernatural healing, and in the second half of this lesson we'll look at the topic of miracles, because miracles are a critical element in the ministry of Jesus. In this chapter, John, the author continues to employ what we call the miracle-message approach to which Jesus performs a miracle and then follows it with a teaching on the spiritual aspect of that miracle. In this lesson, Jesus uses the miracle of a man receiving sight as a basis for a short message on spiritual blindness. However, we as believers know that the much greater miracle here is not the opening of this man's eyes, but the opening of his heart to the Lord, and that is always the greatest supernatural event that happens to anyone. So if you are taking notes, Roman number one, the plot. Hmm. One day, Jesus and his disciples are walking along a city street, and they see a man who's been blind since birth. To make this man more human, let's, let's give him a name. Let's call him uh, Yonkel. I mean, who's to say his name is not Yonkel? <laughs> so about the only thing a blind man could do at this time was beg, and that's what Yonkel is doing. According to the 4th century B.C. philosopher Aristotle, blindness was considered to be a disease of heredity in the Mediterranean basin, it was usually referred to as a complete loss of sight, and in all cases, it was presumed to be incurable. The disciples demonstrated how they have bought into an erroneous Jewish way of thinking when they conclude that there are only two possible explanations for the man's blindness. Either his parents had sinned, or the man had sinned that he had been born blind. Surprisingly, the disciples show no compassion on the man, but rather view him only as a subject for a theological discussion. After all, it's easier for any of us to discuss uh, to discuss something about sin or an idea or an abstract thought than to actually do something about it. Well, certainly both Yonkel and his parents had committed sins because we live in a fallen world, but Jesus does not consider their sin to be the cause of this man's blindness, nor does Jesus suggest that God deliberately made the man blind so that in this moment, boom, Jesus could perform a miracle, as if the man's lifelong blindness had been a cruel trick up until that point. So Jesus says, quote, Neither this man nor his parents have sinned that he was born blind, but this has occurred so that the works of God may be displayed in him. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. End of quotation. And then Jesus puts mud on his the man's eyes, and tells him to go and wash it off in a pool. Now, here's a question we might ask at this point. Why does Jesus put mud on the man's eyes? We don't know, but we see in the Gospels that Jesus never heals two people exactly the same way. For instance, in Matthew 9, Jesus heals two blind men by simply touching their eyes. In Mark 8, Jesus heals another blind man by spitting on his eyes. We don't know for sure, but perhaps Yonkel needs something physical like mud to, to, that he can feel to encourage his faith. But we do know 
that in each of these three cases, the men are all given sight. So why does Jesus vary his method of healing people? I think it varies. he varies his method lest people focus on the method of the healing and the miracle but miss the message that it is the power of God that heals. In this incident, it's part of Jesus' plan for the man to be obedient by faith to do what Jesus tells him to do, which is to wash off the mud from his eyes in a pool down the street. Well, Yonkel obeys by faith what Jesus tells him to do, and he receives his sight. After Yonkel washes his eyes, the world suddenly explodes with light for him, and he perceives life that he'd never seen before. I mean, I cannot even imagine. Now, his neighbors, whom, of course, he'd never seen before, but who had watched him beg his whole life, say, Yonkel, there's something different about you today. Don't tell me. Um, you got a haircut. No, they don't say that, but it does take some of them a while to even recognize him. Miracles were not common in Israel had it not been since the time of Elijah some 400 years before. So the neighbors begin to ask him, what happened to you? Who did this? And if somebody healed you, where's the healer? Yaakov replies, his name is Jesus. He put mud on my eyes and told me to wash it off in that Siloam pool down the street. But besides that, who's to say what happened or, or where the man is? Yonkel seems to show an alarming lack of curiosity about the miracle because he's just so overjoyed. So the neighbors take him to the Pharisees, whom, of course, he'd never seen before either, and they ask him what had happened, and he happily tells them the same story, and then he leaves. Now, the miracle occurred on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees are already antagonistic toward Jesus, which causes some tension. So they give Yonkel their standard legalistic condemnation regarding the fact that anyone who does not follow Sabbath rules is a sinner, and a sinner cannot possibly heal a man of blindness. Then another group of Pharisees disagree with him and say, how can a man who's a sinner do this miracle? So there's a division among the Pharisees, and to settle it, they call in the man's parents for questioning and ask him. They ask, number one, what is it your son who is healed? Number two, was he really born blind? Number three, how is it he can see? His mother responds, Ah, Yonkel, he's a good boy. A mother should know. How was he healed? Who's to say? My uncle is all grown up now, so why not ask him? As we see here, it is this ongoing prejudicial attack of the Pharisees toward Jesus and his followers that continues to cause such problems. And that's why they were not fair, you see. Mm. Fair, you see. It's a little play I on words in that. English. Yeah. Did you catch that? We're all laughing hysterically over here. Yeah. yeah. Although um, it doesn't translate so well into Spanish because it's uh, the, 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 it doesn't rhyme quite the same way. Okay. Anyway, so the Pharisees call him back a second time and again ask how he was healed by the sinner. And Yonkel essentially says, look, I'm a simple man. I don't know if he's a sinner. I'm not a theologian. All I know is what I said before. I met a man named Jesus, and bada-ding, bada-boom. I was blind, and now I see, and I'm so happy. Why do you want to hear the story again? Do you want to sign up for his team, too? Well, the Pharisees become furious for that last comment by him, and they throw him out of the synagogue. Now, this might just be a hasty response from the Pharisees, because 
a formal excommunication would mean it would be very difficult for him to function in the Jewish community because the synagogue is the center of all Jewish spiritual activity. Furthermore, the man has just received sight for the first time in his life, so to be excommunicated would be a pretty vengeful thing to do. But what Yonkel finds remarkable is not his own, his own belief, but in the unbelief of the Pharisees. It's their spiritual blindness that prevents them from receiving sight and truth and grace and new life in Jesus. Again, the question for us is, will we choose to ask Jesus to show us if we have any spiritual blind spots in our life that keep us from embracing all that the Lord has for us? Now, before we go to another subject, let's briefly consider Roman numeral 2, two themes that run throughout Scripture. The first theme is this. It is God who finds us. A few decades ago, there was a ministry which did an evangelistic outreach called I Found It. Maybe some of you remember that. For months, everywhere one looked in America, on billboards, on buses, on buttons, were the words, I found it. Now, one of the hopes of the campaign was that people who saw those three words might turn to someone nearby and say, do you know what I found it is all about? And if the other person's a believer, they could tell that person, yes, I know. It means that a person who finds Jesus can discover God's purpose for their life. Now, I don't know ultimately how successful the campaign was, but from Scripture, we see over and over that it's the Lord who makes the first move toward us. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were never lost, so they did not have to be found. It's people who became lost after the Garden of Eden, and it was God who finds them. As Romans 5.8 essentially says, While we were living our lives lost in sin and unaware of truth, Jesus died on the cross for us that we might have a restored relationship with him. In other words, God made the move. God is in the lost and found business. We were lost and dead in our sin, and he found us. And when we respond, it is by grace. Now, in chapter 9, there were probably many other blind people begging in that town, but it was Jesus who finds the one, the man, who does not look for Jesus at all, but Jesus finds him. And Yonkel's response in verses 36 to 38 is one of the most beautiful in the New Testament. Jesus finds Yonkel after he's been booted from the synagogue, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Yonkel replies, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, It is the one speaking to you now. And Yonkel says, Lord, I believe. And Scripture says, And he worships Jesus. And this is the only place in John where anyone is said to worship Jesus. So it's God who finds us, and that's the first thing that runs through the scripture that we see in this lesson. The second thing we see today, theme we see, is it's not, not seen as believing, but believing is seen. Jesus takes the initiative to find Yonkel, puts mud on his eyes, tell him, tells him to go and wash the mud off. Yonkel obeys that command and receives his sight. And the Greek word for believe is what? Pisteu, which is a verb means to trust to commit to, to put your weight down on. Yonkel believes and receives sight. The Pharisees do not believe, and they stay spiritually blind to the truth. So believing is seen. God does not force himself and anyone to believe. Yes, he is in control of all things. He is sovereign. And yes, we also have a choice to believe or not. And those who believe that Jesus is their Savior will receive sight. And as we continue to believe, 
the more wisdom and insight he'll give us for how we are to live. Jesus often required people to do something to express their faith, and then they were healed. So again, the two themes, number one, it's it's God who finds us, and number two, believing is seen. So when we take that first step toward him to believe, he gives us sight and wisdom and more understanding about who he is, and we discover, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship, which in the Greek is the word poem. So we are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared many years ago, that we might do them. So we take a step in faith, and God gives us more sight. We take another step in faith, and he gives us even more sight, and that's how faith in Jesus grows. So, we're up to Roman number three, miracles. We now look at the subject of miracles because it's a critical part of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the four Gospels describe Jesus performing at least 30 specific miracles, and there were apparently many more according to John 20, verse 30. Even the most skeptical of secular historians accept three facts about this man named Jesus. Number one, he lived. Number two, he was crucified. Number three, he had a reputation as a miracle worker. Now, the word miracle is often overused. I've heard the word used in reference to everything from, I fell down so hard yesterday that it's a miracle I didn't break my arm, all the way to an unmarried man who says, it's a miracle. She called me. (laughs) Well, the definition of miracle in the dictionary is this, an event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers. In other words, a miracle defies logical explanation. Of course, the most extraordinary miracle associated with Jesus is his own resurrection, which from the earliest days of the church is considered to be the foundation of the church's existence. And Bill, that brings us to uh, Roman number four. I think it'd be a good time to take a break. We're continuing our study of the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington, and we'll be right back. Back with Dr. Greg Heddington. We're continuing our study in the book of John. We're in John chapter 9. Greg, let's uh, let's continue. All right. Roman numeral 4, the irrationality of a miracle-free Jesus. Skepticism about miracles arises mostly from the Western world, which is where we live, and which we sometimes think of as more sophisticated than the larger majority world. But it's in the majority world, speaking in general terms, that the supernatural is not considered so uncommon. As St. Augustine wrote in the 5th century, quote, Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. So there have always been skeptics over the past 2,000 years who try to account for Jesus, but without the miraculous. For example, some of us have visited Thomas Jefferson's home in Monticello, Virginia, and we've seen his personal Bible in which he, as a rationalist, cut out with a razor blade, 
all the references to the miracles. Of course, that Bible's much thinner than the one probably each of us has. Now, remember, we use the word miracle because it has no rational explanation. Skeptics sometimes make a rather demeaning assumption that first century Palestine was populated by simple people who would cry out, it's a miracle, at the slightest coincidence or oddity. The truth is, claims of the miraculous in Scripture are more rare than many people assume. For example, there are no miracles associated with great leaders like David or Solomon, and apart from the miracles that Moses and later Elijah and Elisha performed in the first ten Old Testament books, miracles are almost entirely absent in the prophetic books that make up most of the other 39 books of the Old Testament. In reality, and most of us are trying to live in reality, at least most of the time, it's impossible to create a miracle-free Jesus. Think of the creation of the world. Scripture says that Jesus, as the second person in the triune God, was involved in the creation of all things. So why would one quibble about any miracles associated with Jesus? Could anything be more miraculous than creating the sun, the stars, the planets, and the rest of the expanding universe? No way. Now, a final comment on the irrationality of anyone claiming that there is no such possibility as a miracle-free Jesus is regarding the literature from the first century A.D. apart from the New Testament which describes Jesus as an exorcist and a miracle worker. For example, the historian Eusebius speaks of a Greek man who writes to the Roman emperor, who was Hadrian at the time, right around 120 A.D., and describes how some of those who had been raised from the dead or healed by Jesus are still alive at the end of the first century, and they can give testimony to the power of Jesus. In fact, we see in Scripture that none of the people who are hostile toward Jesus deny that he did miracles. In fact, they attribute the miracles to Jesus, but they contend that he must have had occult powers, hmm. as some people claim in Scripture. Now, to fully discuss the subject of miracles in the life of Jesus would take much more time than we have, but if you're interested in reading the many examples and testimonies made by many from extracurricular sources, a book that I like that I bought was The Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels by University Press. And there's a whole chapter on these uh, on miracles and miracle stories. That's one whole chapter from historians. So that's something you might consider. Well, last point, Roman numeral five to conclude. As we conclude the topic of miracles in the ministry of Jesus, it's important to remember that regarding the healing of someone, no matter how much faith we have, God is still in control, and he may or may not heal that person that we're praying for. We pray in our time, and God heals in his time, but we do continue to pray in faith. Also, it's important to remember that although miracles can generate faith, they do not compel us to believe. If we put the emphasis on the miracle rather than the maker of miracles, well, we'll simply go off the rails spiritually. For example, I have a cousin who was in seminary and was having a difficult time in life when he says he heard the audible voice of God tell him, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Well, instead of receiving that voice as a comfort that the Lord is with him, he became preoccupied with attempting to somehow hear that voice again. 
He continued to seek after that voice, but never heard it again. And after years of seeking, he finally gave up his faith. Now, sadly, he had sought the miracle and and not the miracle worker. Mm -hmm. The way we consider a miracle depends on what we believe in order to understand the significance of that miracle. So again, the second theme that flows throughout Scripture is believing is seeing. The seven miracles in John's Gospel are called signs and therefore to be taken as pointing to who Jesus is, the character of his kingdom, the hope of the future, and the very nature of our loving and gracious God. We know God. God was skin, and that was Jesus. For those people who do not look for meaning or a transcendent truth outside of themselves, well, they will continue to be blind. But for those who know they need help and truth beyond themselves, in order to find purpose, they are given sight. And as Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And that was true in Jesus' time, and it's true now, and we respond to what God has already done for us. And as we end this lesson, we always remember that the greatest miracle that occurs in anyone's life is not physical, but the spiritual transformation of the heart when someone becomes open to the joy and truth of following the risen Jesus as Lord. And therefore, may we ask the Lord to show us any spiritual blind spots in our lives so that we may fully live for him. Bill, that's what I have to say. That's a powerful, again, a powerful lesson in the book of John. I'm loving this, and we still have uh, about three minutes left, and I would love to maybe dig in a little deeper about this term, seeing is believing. Um, so what, what, what's the problem with that idea? Yeah, Bill, it's a, <laughs> it's a problem because it's not true. And and I'll get your perspective on this in a minute, but let me give you an example. I have been in an audience of people when a preacher up front, who's known as a healer, performed a physical healing on a person. Mm -hmm. And there were many people who were also witnesses to that healing. But I thought, okay, I've got to talk to some other people and see what they thought. I'm just curious. So afterwards, I talked to several people. One of them said, I don't believe that person was really crippled. Another person said, how do we know how long that healing is going to last? Mm. And then this is, I mean, this sounds like I'm making it up, but this is what really happened. The third person said, he didn't look like he needed to be healed too much, and I don't know if he looks like he's healed now, even after he says he's been healed. Well, in other words, people are often skeptical of what they actually see with their own eyes. Okay, but more and more people today are skeptical, you tell me if you think this is true, of everything they see or hear. I mean, they think it's all a trick, but the point comes where one must decide for or against Jesus because of the evidence they have. And then if they don't follow Jesus, they're going to have to decide, where do I go now? Who can possibly make the incredible claims that Jesus did and then back them up? So, Bill, that's just some thoughts. I'm sure you've got a few. Well, I I agree. The, the, the fact that when you come to faith— and it's not by sight, but it's by believing in the word. It's that Greek word, pisteo, where uh-huh. you believe in, put your weight down into, lean into, and your allegiance goes to Christ because of what he did. Yeah. That's where the promise lies. And for that is where the great joy is. Because yes. I, you know, if you want to see 
a miracle, then how many more miracles do you need to see before you're convinced? Amen. Amen. I mean, one of the guys on my church staff one time said, if I could just see a miracle, then I believe. And I thought in my mind, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so good, Greg. I know my, my listeners are loving this study, and I am too. So thank you for uh, spending more time with us today. I'm looking forward to our next time together. It'll be Lesson 15. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. So thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest as we continue our study on the book of John. I hope one day we'll get these all organized onto one web page. Rosie's shaking her head yes, so it will happen. And you can binge study this this study of the book of John. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.